Welcome back to another episode of Fascinate Pod with me, Sam Brown. Today's guest runs the International Centre for Birds of Prey near Gloucester. The centre is one of the worldwide leaders in raptor conservation. Jemima Parry Jones has been on the TV and radio multiple times, and today she's here with me to speak about her centre, the research that she's involved with, and her love for vultures. That's right, I've never met anyone so enthralled by vultures before. And after hearing this episode, I hope you'll stop thinking of them as just a cartoon villain. Now, without any further ado, here's Jemima Parry-Jones. So, Jemima, thank you so much for coming on to the Fascinate podcast. So, I came here about a year ago, and I told you in the emails to you that I was kind of in two minds as to whether to come or not. But when I arrived here, I was struck mainly by you, your obvious passion and desire that you really want to, you want to help birds, vultures in particular. How did you get involved in this? What does your early <laughs> life look like? Oh, my early life. Well, I was born in Salisbury and the only, thing, the only two things I can remember about it is my father dropping me off at the school door and not being able to reach the door handle which may explain a lot about me, but I'm not sure. And they also used to have in Salisbury Museum a giant, which they brought out for various festivals, and it was huge, and I remember the giant, but that's about all. We then moved to... And my father had birds there, and my mother says that well, there were literally peregrines on the big wicker washing, washing basket that I happened to inhabit at the time. Um, and then we moved to just outside Salisbury and he started to know and begin to work for an actor called James Robertson Justice, who was a very famous actor. He was in Doctor at Sea and Doctor at Large and what have you. I don't think he ever acted, he just played himself. <laughs> he was a very big character. And so James employed him as his falconer. And then we moved up to Scotland. So we moved right up to the north of Scotland, to the other side of Inverness, before they put a bridge there. So we were in a place called North Keswick, and we were on a farm. And other than that, I remember going out... <laughs> sorry There's about the, the dogs. dogs. <laughs> out with one of the farm lads who would take me out on the back of a tractor, which I've always loved tractors ever since. And I remember seeing Capercaillie in the forest there. And then eventually, because the schooling in Scotland at that time was not great, we went to, I think, three or four different schools in a very short space of time. Uh, we moved down to Dorset. And Dorset was a wonderful place for me because we lived in a dead-end village with a water splash at the end. So for kids to grow up, you know, we, you could wander around in the road, you could take your bicycle out, it was 100% safe, there was virtually no traffic. Sounds great. It was fantastic, and we used to play with and fight with all the local school kids. Um, and Father still had birds. He used to go up to Scotland every year and take peregrines from the wild legally, let me hasten to add, because at that time it was perfectly legal. How does that work, sorry? Um, he used to climb cliffs and take a young from an eyrie, a nest, 
and bring it back and train it and then fly it at grouse in Scotland later on during the grouse season. And is that something that's changed over the years? I presume it's not legal now. Well, it it became illegal to take birds from the wild when it was realised that peregrines were declining as fast as they were because of DDT. And so then you could take them under licence and then the licences were stopped in the 80s. And that was one of the things that really pushed captive breeding forward because in this country you couldn't get a bird other than to captive breed one or bring one in from abroad. And so that's why father pioneered a lot of the captive breeding that is out and about today. So we used to have people come and visit every weekend. They would come and see him. They wanted to see the birds, talk to him. We used to get very bored with them. And... In the end, Father decided that what he would like to do is start somewhere where he could actually teach people falconry, where he could show them how to do it properly. Because the problem with training a bird of prey, the difference between training a bird of prey or a dog or a horse or a human, is if you make a mistake with a dog or a horse or a human, you just have a really badly behaved one. You make a mistake with a bird of prey, you can kill it because you, you do it through weight management. And if you don't know what you're doing, it can be quite risky. So we moved up here when I was 17. And I think I must have, at that time, driven into Gloucester at least three times a day to collect birds. At that time, you could buy birds from the exchange in March. And we came here in November 1966, worked really hard, and we opened to the public with 60 birds on May the 25th, 1967. And we've been here ever since. What's changed since then? Because the centre today is involved with a lot of environmental work all around the world. You seem to have quite a primary focus on education and making sure that people, people like myself, who before I came here, had no idea that there was even a, a vulture crisis going on. What's the change looked like over the last sort of 50 years? The change, I think, was when I started to go to... Raptor scientific conferences. And it it very nearly stopped me doing anything, the first one, because when I went there, I was a female, a non-scientist, a falconer, open to the general public and doing captive breeding or trying to. And at that time, all of those things were an anathema to a lot of scientists. And I was vilified in front of everybody at one point. And so I went away thinking, well, maybe we're doing the wrong thing. Maybe we shouldn't be doing this. Maybe we should give up. And then I thought, no, blow it. They're wrong. What we're doing is very important. And what you have, what I have, and and my staff as well, is that you gain an understanding about the birds that no scientist will ever have just by watching them or researching or even catching them and putting harnesses on them and satellite tags. If you train them, if you breed them, train them, fly them, help them back to the wild with the rehabilitation ones, cover almost every aspect that we cover, plus some of the science that we do, then you are able to have a far greater understanding of birds of prey than any of my scientist friends have and I think in the end they know that and so I began to be talked to and I would always ask questions I'd say okay you're telling me that if there is a very bad foliar 
hen harriers don't do very well, and you've done a whole research programme to find that out. Isn't that common sense? That if their food isn't around, then they probably won't do very well. And my scientist friends used to say, yeah, you're right, Mima, but unfortunately we have to prove it. <laughs> Which was an eye-opener, and so that's why the focus changed. So has your... Uh, has your opinion on falconry changed over the, the last sort of 50 years? Are you still very pro being able to do it? Because I, I can imagine why there might have been some sci- some pushback from the scientists, mm. maybe on uh, ethical reasons. They are sort of such magnificent creatures and they can cover such vast distances and fly so fast. Caging them and cooping them up and tethering them to a, a place might not be... No, absolutely. And I still think twice about it. You still think, okay... How are they doing? Is this the right thing to do? Are we doing the right thing? Are the birds okay? And falconry has changed a lot over the last 50 years. There are some aspects of falconry I do not like. There are far too many people breeding birds, like dogs, and far too many people selling a puppy or you know these god-awful puppy farms to anybody who will buy one without knowing what they're doing. And the same thing happens with birds of prey. And that side of it, I actually have a certain degree of guilt because this was the first ever bird of prey centre in this country and there are now over 200 of them. And I have to say that well over 60% of them are pretty poor and some of them are appalling. And the legislation which should cover them is nowhere near good enough. But I also know that almost every single conservation breeding programme in the world with birds of prey has either been started by people who are falconers, worked on by people who are falconers, run by people who are falconers. So there are good and bad aspects, just the same as with everything. You can say there are good and bad teachers, good and bad policemen. So long as you do what you are doing with a bird ethically, so long as you treat it in the way it should do, you've seen the flying demonstrations here. Mm. I mean, if you let a bird off and it is two and a half miles away and a thousand feet up, there is nothing to stop it from keeping going. Some people will say, oh, you only starve them, which is absolute rubbish because for a bird to be able to fly as well as some of ours do, they have to be seriously fit. And a seriously fit bird has a huge amount of muscle on board and they're eating quite a lot to keep that muscle. If you've ever tried to get fit, you'll know that Mm -hmm. actually... I'm told that muscle weighs more than fat. So it I does, always, yeah. Oh, good. I'm so glad. I'll think of that every time I get on the scales. <laughs> so I, I do just want to mention that this facility here is uh, a member of BIASA, so the British and Irish Association for Zoos and Aquariums. Mm-hmm. I spoke about this with someone on a, on a previous podcast, um, and their kind of view was that there's quite a lot of zoos out there, but if you want to make sure that they're not a cowboy zoo and that they're actually producing something and giving something back in the UK anyway, that they're a member. Mm-hmm. So aside from them, do you work with any other associations, maybe like the RSPB? Yep, I'm working I'm working with the RSPB on nearly all of the, well, all the vulture stuff in South Asia. Uh, we are working with Green Balkans in Bulgaria on Seika falcons. We're sending over a female Seika this year and they have sent us some lesser kestrels and we're hoping to also send a griffin vulture over there that we've just bred for release. Green Balkans is is an NGO in Bulgaria which has been breeding and releasing Eurasian griffin vultures. They're now breeding and releasing Egyptian vultures and they're also doing a really good breeding and release program with lesser kestrels and 
Seca falcons. So we have helped them both with some of their rehabilitation work and also their captive breeding work, which it's really nice to have that sort of relationship with them. Uh, we work with some of the other zoos in exchanges with birds. We've just had a female secretary bird brought in and I've got a male that we have to go and collect sometime next month. Uh, they're one of my favourite birds. And wherever possible, we work with the people in the country where the problem is because they're on the ground and understand the culture and the people. Mm. You talked about the captive breeding programmes. How does that translate from captive breeding to wild breeding? They're obviously not in their natural habitat. They're being fed and they're, they don't have to look out for predators. And I, I mean, there's so much more to it. There's a huge amount to it. And so if you are breeding, if you're doing a conservation breeding program for release, in some ways, the vultures that we're working with at the moment are far easier because they will come to a carcass. So all you do is you build your release aviary close to where you can have a feeding station. You leave them in there until they're settled. They understand you put food outside as well as inside. That'll pull in um, any wild vultures that are around. So by the time you open the cage door to let them out from the release pen, they know exactly what to do in terms of how to behave with the other vultures. The difficult bit, which we are finding and I have seen with other release programs in South Africa, is getting them to actually go away from the feeding station and to learn to soar. Learning to soar is the most difficult thing for them. Is that something you try and teach them here? It's something that we try and teach the birds that we fly here. Mm. Learning to soar, one of the biggest aspects of it is you've got to have the right habitat so if you are a soaring bird it's really helpful if you live in mountainous areas and some of the most successful release programs for vultures have been in mountainous areas and also with migratory birds so that migration button in their head kicks in and they go okay i'm supposed to be doing something rather than just sitting waiting for the next cow to be delivered on a bicycle in nepal Mm. So mountainous areas are better because there's updrafts there yep. and that's what they use to soar yep. on. For them learning to fly. But of course the vultures in greater parts of India and Africa and Nepal aren't in mountainous areas, they're in quite flat areas. And so there they have to learn by using thermals. And that's a little bit more difficult because they've got to learn to find a thermal, how to use it and to f ideally to follow the other vultures up. So this is things that... That their parents would teach them, I suppose. They would follow their parents. So it would happen by following mum and dad. And at the moment, some of the ones that we are releasing are not following the wild ones. What's your sort of success rate then? Well, what you've got to look at when you release anything is you have to look at what is the normal mortality rate for those birds in the wild anyway. So you have to be prepared that anything up to 50% of your birds or pretty much throughout all the species is not going to make it through its first year. And actually, with some of the good release programs, we increase the number that do survive because you're providing food. It's, called what, it's what, what's called a soft release. So what you do is you have food available for them so that if they're failing to learn to hunt for themselves, they can come back and get some food. And then what you do, and that's the slightly tricky bit, is you start to reduce the food you put out there. Or you only put it out 
slightly less in time. So you'll, if it was if you were releasing peregrines, for example, you'd put food out for them every day, and then pretty much you do what the wild ones do. I mean, Mum, when she sees the peregrines on her cliff ledge nest or on a cathedral or wherever it is, and they are nearly full grown and they're doing their wing flapping practice, she stops feeding them. She says, okay, I've got some food here, and she flies past. And then she turns around and she flies back again, and she says, if you want this food, you've got to jump. And, you know, I wouldn't jump off a 200-foot <laughs> cliff. <laughs> Maybe if you had wings. If I had wings and I really wanted a piece of grouse or pigeon, but she has to do pretty much what we do when I train the birds. She withholds food and says, you want it, you come and get it which is amazing, really, when you think about it. Mm. So um, if you were putting peregrines out, then you would feed every day and then you would reduce it to every other day and you would soon know that the birds are beginning to forage. And most of the birds these days that are released in a conservation breeding program are wearing satellite tags. So you know exactly what happens anyway. How are they tagged? They are tagged with a very light weight. The rules are no more than 3% of the bird's body weight. So with some of these tiny birds, you know, the tiniest of satellite transmitters, they're amazing, and they're getting smaller by the day, and they wear a, a backpack. Some, some will use just a piece of tape. They put it onto a bird, and they know it's going to fall off within a couple of weeks or three weeks. Some of the ones that we're using at the moment can be on for three to five years and working for three to five years. My only concern about satellite tagging and harnessing, which is why we're running a workshop this month here, is that there are some very strict rules in this country. You have to be licensed to do it. You have to have gone through various training to be able to do it. But there's an awful lot of other countries in the world where you don't have to have any training whatsoever. And you can go out and catch your bird and slap a harness on it without knowing what you're doing. And that is a concern. And the other concern, I think, is a good friend of mine who's been harnessing and satellite tagging ospreys in North America to look at their migration. He said, OK, I've done enough. I know where they go. They're not going to change where they're going. I don't need to catch any more ospreys and put satellite tags on them. We have enough knowledge that isn't going to change. And that's pretty cool. I like that aspect. I like that attitude towards the wildlife. And the data that you get from that can help you... You, if you've got a satellite tag on a bird and consistently they're drowning mm. because they're going the wrong way or the wind directions have changed permanently. I mean, we're very reliant in this country on the Gulf Stream. And if it moves permanently, we would be in big trouble one way or the other. Um, if they keep getting shot or eaten in their wintering grounds, there was a huge thing a while ago where they were spraying, I forget what chemical, on um, insects in South America and a huge number of migrating birds were coming down to eat the insects and they were literally dying in front of the tractor. And it was big enough furore about the whole thing that the chemical was banned almost straight away. And I don't know if you saw, but there was also two or three years ago in, um, I think it was Nagaland in India, huge numbers of amur falcons being caught and then eaten. And this got on Facebook and there was, again, a huge fuss about it. And because of all the huge fuss and everybody writing to the Indian government, 
it was stopped then and there. And that's pretty cool. There has to be one good reason for Facebook. <laughs> I quite like that. But but the satellite tagging on Amur Falcons, we now know they do the most amazing migration. Three days across the Indian Ocean. A little falcon like a kestrel. How much do they weigh? Um, probably about the same as our kestrels, five to six, seven ounces. Wow. So you work with a lot of birds, but like I said before, vultures has been your, I suppose, primary concern over the last couple of decades. And mm. um, when I came here, you were telling me and the the rest of the, the audience that there was such a phenomenal decline in the numbers, especially in Asia. So can you give me a bit of an update? Yeah. What happened was I actually got asked to go over to India in 1999 by a scientist friend of mine who had been contacted by the Parsis. And the Parsis are Zoroastrians who have their dead eaten by vultures. Oh, like a mountain burial. Yeah, only they have what they call um, the Towers of Silence, where they it's quite ritualised, where they put the, the bodies. And because it's a tower and because it's got a wall around it, the only thing that can get in there to eat the bodies is um, our birds. Mm. And so they have a huge problem because the vultures weren't coming in and they came to me and asked me if there was anything I could do. And so I went out to India and saw the Towers of Silence, which was interesting, and didn't see any vultures at all. And then the following year there was a big conference in India and there was a huge alert across the world saying, "Okay, the vultures are going, we can't find them anymore, they're not here. And there was a survey, and the total number of birds that were lost, we reckon, in the 20-year period was 40 million birds, which is staggering. (laughs) And as a percentage of the population? But 99.9 with one of them, 99.5 with one, fractionally less with the third one. And and this is just in Asia? This is just in Asia with this particular vulture because it was was the weirdest reason. It took four years to find out what it was. And in the end, a really nice American scientist called Lindsay Oakes discovered that it was a drug called diclofenac or diclofenac, whichever way you like to call it. It was licensed in the late 80s as a veterinary drug. And that was in Asia, uh, South America and Africa. But because of the Hindu faith and cattle being sacred, there are huge numbers of cattle in India. Um, I think it's 502 million cattle, cows, sheep and goats in India. Although I'd love to know who counted them. And (laughs) (laughs) it's like knowing there are 22,000 feathers on a swan. And somebody counted them. Can you believe it? Is that true? Yeah. 40% of which are on their neck. But anyway... We worked out the... I didn't do it because I'm not a scientist, but a good friend of mine who's on the the SAVE team worked out that it would only take 2.5% of the cattle to have diclofenac and die while being treated on it to cause the decline. And we found out that they were using 2.5 million doses of diclofenac every year in cattle. And that's what caused this catastrophic decline. And, of course, there's that old saying, as I usually say to our visitors here, nature abhors a vacuum. And 40 million birds gone is a huge gap in the environment. And so in India, one of the things that is slowly filling it is feral dogs. And their numbers have now reached 31 million dogs. 
and a lot of them carry rabies. So wild, like running around in packs. There, yeah. You wherever you go in India, you see dogs, and they they're generally okay. But when they get into big packs, they get dangerous. They're attacking people. Um, they're killing people on occasion. They're certainly taking living domestic animals and also living wildlife because they're in such big packs. And where a vulture can fly 200 kilometres to find food if the place where it normally gets it hasn't got any, dogs are much more limited to their range. And so that's why they're getting as aggressive and difficult as they are. So what's the reason behind the increase in dogs? And What happens is if you've got a carcass and you've got 100 vultures around it. And actually, if you've got 100 vultures around it, that carcass will be stripped in half an hour. It's so efficient, it's not true. Then the dogs don't get to look in. But if you've only got one or two vultures around a carcass, then the dogs chase off the birds, and so there's a much greater food supply for the dogs, which means that they do more breeding and the puppies live longer and you get more dogs and you get more rabies, which is why India is now top in the world for humans dying of rabies. 25,000 people a year. That's huge. And, you know, apart from the, the cost of human life, between 1993 and 2006, it cost India $34 billion dollars in medical costs. Just rabies? Vultures are really important. You reminded me a minute ago of a story that I read, must be over a year ago now. It was in Africa, and basically what had happened is that quite a few poachers had been out, and they'd been after an elephant. Um, And they know that if they kill something, pretty soon uh, vultures are going to be circling, and they're not... And they're going to get found out. They're going to get found by the authorities. So what happened was they flew a drone over the area and they saw this elephant and it had been decapitated and its tusks were lying out and you could see the the people sort of preparing it. Well, I think what they'd done is poison the meat so that the vultures would come down, eat it, and then these hundreds of vultures would just be lying around dead. Yep. Um, just so that they wouldn't be able to be found later on that day or the next few days. Yeah, the problem uh, with elephants is it takes quite a long time to hack the tusks out of the skull. When it's rhinos, uh, and in fact when I was in South Africa two years ago, we were trying to catch some vultures. None of them were coming into the bait that we had, so we went to have a look and see where they all were, and there were two uh, poached rhinos then and there. But with rhinos, they come in, shoot them, chop off the the horn with a chainsaw and off they go. With elephants, it takes five to six hours or longer to hack the tusks out. And bear in mind, there is one elephant killed every 26 minutes, which means if you have grandchildren, the chances are there'll be no elephants out there in the wild, not at this rate, one every 26 minutes. That's disgusting. It's... Personally, I would happily feed both the poachers and even more the people who buy the ivory to all of my vultures and laugh generally on the way because I think that is just despicable to wipe out a whole amazing species just to have ivory. The thing is, you've got to address the issue as to why they're doing it. They're obviously very poor people. Mm -mm. The conference I was at in South Africa last year, we had the head of all the national parks there and he was a very nice black guy really knew his stuff and he said do not think these people are poor they are greedy 
and that was him talking about his own countrymen. And sometimes it's even a ranger who's supposed to be looking after the elephants. So no, don't think that it's people who are starving to death going out and killing the elephant and being paid to do it. They don't have to kill an elephant every 26 minutes. And in fact, the stupid thing is people go to Africa to see the wildlife. If they wipe it out, they're far more likely to starve than they are if they take care of it. Yeah, well, this is what I figured. I figured if you just increase the amount of parks there are, increase the amount of tourism that goes there, and the amount of money that, that comes in through that. I think there's been quite a few positive stories where there's mm. been, uh, for example, a uh, previous guest on the podcast w- worked out in Rwanda. And over the last uh, sort of 20, 30 years, the, the tourism that's gone to see the gorillas there, mm. it's the major source of income for the area anyway. So I think there's a lot of success stories through just educating people and then providing the, the infrastructure to in, in a different manner. Yeah, that's the thing, is trying to educate people to look far enough ahead to see that they would be better having their wildlife around them than they are wiping it out for short-term cash. But you're right, the the vultures in Africa are about on the same decline level as they are in South Asia. It's just taken about 10 years longer. It's taken 30 years instead of 20. And there was um, an elephant killing in Botswana about a month ago, and... 537 vultures were dead around the three elephants, of which most of them were, well, all of them were critically endangered or endangered. And critically endangered means there is a 50% chance of them being extinct in your lifetime, which, you know, have we not got past that? Should we not have learnt from the dodo that if you wipe it out, that's it. And would you have liked to have seen a dodo? I'd have loved to have seen a dodo. Yeah. But at least then you could say, okay, it was ignorance. You can't say that now. It's not ignorance. When you've got people like David Attenborough out there showing people, telling people, look, this is what we're doing, and the BBC are slowly beginning to be a bit more honest about it, because they, I think, are being pushed to realise that if you're not honest about it and if you don't say, look, guys, this is our fault, then nothing will change. How will it change then? Like, education is the key, isn't it? Yeah. And so how, how do you go about educating people about the vulture crisis? Well, I give a talk very similar to the what I've said to you here. And, and when you tell people 40 million birds have died in 20 years, you can see them going, whoa. You have to say the number. If you say 99.5%, it goes straight over people's heads. But if you say 40 million birds you can see the light dawn on their faces. And if you point out that it costs a fortune if you haven't got vultures because they've been your free dustman for years Mm. and that they are important for keeping waterways clear and getting rid of disease. And the same thing with trees. You know, I don't know about you, but I really like having water and oxygen, both of which are given to me by trees. Well, that's great. I'd like to keep having it. (laughs) Two of my favourite things. Mm. I'm really interested how you discovered vultures how why did you get involved with them specifically um because i i feel like the public opinion of a vulture is maybe of the bad guy in a disney film i know so what's the difference between the reality and what you might see on tv or what the public might think Disney had a lot to answer for and a lot of people when they talk about vultures or they show film on vultures show aspects of vultures that aren't always the most wonderful. 
If you watch a vulture feeding its chick, it's absolutely staggeringly amazing. If you watch vultures fly, they are so graceful in the air, it's not true. They, mm. they knock spots off an awful lot of other birds. Um, and they're huge. They're the biggest of all the birds of prey. And people come up to me and say, oh, which is the biggest eagle in the world? I say, well, actually, it's not an eagle. It's that Andean condor over there. And if you watch an Andean condor in the wild jump off a huge cliff and just open these wings and the tips of its primaries bend up nearly r at right angles to the rest of its wings and it just floats through the air. It's amazing. It really is. And the thing about this place is that when you have an audience and you can bring vultures down and you can have, as you saw the Egyptian vulture, it goes to the back and it wanders around, it goes underneath the benches and it walks and it's there in front of people, you can change attitudes 180 degrees in about 20 minutes, if less, because they can see it in front of them. And if you say to them, you know, it's got a bald head because it sticks its head inside carcasses, and it doesn't want to be dirty. Do you know it flies anything up to 20 kilometres to find water to have a bath afterwards? How many of you would go 20 kilometres to have a bath? <laughs> Not many, I suspect. <laughs> and so you can, it's the way you put the subject over. And all of my staff here, all, all the visitors say they, their passion comes through. You have to have a passion to do this job because the wages are absolutely crap. <laughs> so you've really got to love what you're doing. <laughs> Well, yeah, when I was there, the passion 100% came across. Mm. I think that if you educate people in a really fun way, which is what you do, you can see the passion in people that are just sat around sort of listening to you. So if you educate them, that's great. But do you also think that you're mis-selling them what the birds are like in the wild, that they might be a, like a fun pet to have? No, and that's something we're very aware of because you will find that a number of places... If you go and watch a flying demonstration or you go to a centre, they will then plonk a bird on your fist afterwards and you can have one of those god-awful selfies taken with your phone on a piece of wood or whatever it is. Um, we don't do that. And people ask us, oh, can I hold a bird? I say, nope. The reason you can't hold a bird is because it makes the whole thing seem too easy. So what we do is we do experience days and half days. So they come here, they've got to be here by 10 o'clock. We don't wait for anyone who's late. They get to fly three birds outside straight away. If something goes wrong and the bird doesn't behave, I'm delighted. Because I always say to people, you know, when you watch a flying demonstration, the birds go off, do their stuff, come back. But my Merlin last week decided it was going to go off, do its stuff and not come back. And it took 25 hours to get it back. Now, if you've got a job you've got to go to, you can't say, oh, I'm sorry, I can't come in, I've lost my bird, I've got to stay with it for the next two days. Or the bald eagle that we lost once, it was, three, it was a week. So we try and show people all the aspects of it. So what's involved, the food, you know, we show them a nice dead rat and a dead quail and what have you and try and put them off. And by the end of it, most of them have a great time but they don't want a bird of their own. Those that do want a bird of their own then will go on to do a six-day course and if they've done that and still want a bird. And one of the things we found for years is that when we taught falconry courses, we actually put more people off than took it up. They would go away and say, that was fantastic, I've learned a huge amount. I'm not ready, I don't have the time, I haven't got the space yet. It's something I'll think of doing in the future, which is great. That's exactly what we want. But on the other hand, 
there are a lot of human beings out there whose lives are made immeasurably better by having a bird, by having a dog, by having an animal which, so long as it's well looked after, is I can't really say with 250 birds here, well, I'm allowed 250 birds, but you can't have one. Mm. If, they, if there are people out there who are going to keep it as well as it could be kept, who are going to learn from it and share the experience, you have to remember that how David Attenborough got to where he was, how Peter Scott got to where he did, how Gerald Durrell got to where he did. Because nowadays you can't even legally pick up a feather or an old bird's nest you could get done under the Wildlife and Countryside Act. How are we going to have new ones of those coming on? I do feel like it's really important to have those connections, which is why I've been so torn about zoos in general in the past. And and the BBC, with its recent documentaries, well, they've always done some great nature documentaries, but they're really good at, at sort of getting the public engaged and showing off wildlife. Mm. But I do think that having that up-close-and-personal view of something really does make you appreciate it. And it also gets you talking, telling your friends about it and telling like the amount of people that will have got second-hand vulture knowledge from a friend <laughs> who came here. Um, uh, it must be in the hundreds of thousands, I imagine. I think so. I think uh, Certainly we find now there's much more awareness of the fact that vultures are in trouble. Mm, I'm sure. Which is good, because it means that the whatever we're saying is slowly getting out there. The birds that you have here, where do they come from? 90% of them are birds that we have over the years bred. They might have been, for example, like our Eurasian griffin vultures. The four that I have, the original birds, were were wild disabled birds. So they had been injured, either shot, hit a power line... Um, possibly even hit a wind turbine and been injured enough that they couldn't be released back to the wild. And so they were kept and we were given four of those and we have bred from all four of them. Uh, And so we have their young now. Um, There are lots of other people breeding birds, some of which come here. Mostly the birds that you see here are birds that over the years we've bred. I'm on the seventh generation of Lana Falcons. I've had this line of peregrines since 1984. I've had the Labradors since 1979. <laughs> <laughs> when you were speaking before about some of the other centres and you were saying that they weren't, their standards weren't very high, no. essentially. Uh, do you feel like they might get their birds from illegal sources, like poaching or something like that? No, highly well. Having said that, there was just a huge case last year which we were involved in where that guy got caught bringing in 19 fertile eggs from Africa. I'm disheartened that the wildlife crime people aren't looking into it more because there are species that shouldn't be over here that are over here. And if they looked into them, particularly with DNA now, You can tell whether things are brother and sister, whether they're really bred from the parents, whether the parents are even there. There's a lot that could be done. But these uh, 19 eggs got caught on a chap coming in from South Africa last year. And so Customs phoned us. And I sent Holly and Adam up. They were shot up to Customs. 
actually throw with incubators and brooders and the whole caboodle. Two of the eggs had actually hatched in customs. And we brought them back here. Holly hatched 18 out of the 19. One was broken, so that wasn't going to hatch. And she reared 17 out of the 18, and they are all here. And unfortunately, they can't go back to Africa because one of the things about a court case is you have to have the evidence. So you can't say, okay, well, I'm going to ship these back to Africa as chicks uh, and get them back as soon as possible so that we can then get them back to the wild. So the court case wasn't until the following January. And by the time that was done, and I was an expert witness at the court case, and the guy got done for illegal trafficking of endangered wildlife, the birds were all full-grown. So our plan is to try and breed from them and then some over time send some of their young back. Not all of them are endangered. Black sparrowhawks aren't, African fish eagles aren't, um, but three of them are cape vultures, which are endangered. How would you integrate them back, or their young, back into, into Africa? You send them back as... Independent chicks, as it were. Chicks that can thermoregulate, that can pick up food on their own, and you get them back to a rehabilitation centre that can get them out quickly. What you don't want to do is send adult hand-reared birds, which is what we had to do, because, of course, they came in in July and our breeding season was over. Mm. So we had no foster parents that we could use, which is what we normally do if we get birds in. Well, We've got a number of birds that will foster and they'll look after them. And then you end up with a bird that knows it is what its mother is. What would you actually do with the chicks? Where would you put them? Would, you, would they be in a centre or would they go in...? There are a number of quite good rehabilitation places in South Africa where they could go. But how does it actually work? Like They don't get given a parent. I imagine that vultures aren't very accommodating to young that isn't no, theirs. No, these would be parent-reared until they're a certain age here. Yeah. And then they would go off for release. Oh, so they'd be ready to to hunt themselves by the time they... They would be, by the time they got there, yes, they would probably be close to getting, being released, and then you would do a soft release, just like was done with red kites in this country, peregrines in North America, Mauritius kestrels in Mauritius, Eurasian griffin vultures in France and Spain, there's hordes of examples. And if you were to guess out of those 18, roughly how many do you think might make it through the first year or two. Well, in the wild? Well, yeah, when you uh, soft-release them. Well, these birds aren't going back because these, the 18 oh, sorry, original young, birds, or it? the 17 original young, um, are not suitable for release. Uh, but their young would go back, and same as would be in the wild. You send back three, one to two would survive. Send back six, two to three would survive. The more you send back... The, more, the higher the number are going to go back to the wild and survive. It's tough out there. Yeah. It is tough. And there, there was a peregrine, a peregrine nest in Norfolk that has CCTV camera on it. It's on uh, Norwich Cathedral. And about three years ago, the pair, which have been very successful at breeding, they usually have three to four babies, CCTV camera on them. The female disappeared halfway through the breeding season. There were four chicks there. And a, a, a new female rolled up, and we're pretty sure that she killed the old female. And we're pretty sure that she killed it on top of the cathedral so we couldn't rescue the body. She then commandeered the male. She made the male feed her. He managed to feed her 
and rear the four chicks by himself. She did nothing about rearing them. And as each of those chicks fledged off the cathedral, she killed it. And they were all four female. So so the one female peregrine was responsible for killing five because she wanted the nest and she wanted the husband. It's tough out there. Yeah, very tough. Is that what happens then? Are the um, females the more dominant of the peregrine falcons? What I would have loved to have known, and of course we'd never know, is if one of the babies had been a male, would she have killed it? Because mm. generally females will kill females and males will kill males. They kill the competitor. Sure. But you should be glad you weren't born a lion. 90% of them don't make it to adult breeding age. 90%. Mm. Only 10% of lions get to have babies. Shame we've got the same thing with humans, isn't it? We wouldn't have the problem we got right now. <laughs> yeah. Um, if we zoom out a little bit to the planet-wide scale, what do you see? Are you quite an optimist or are you pessimistic about the future of wildlife conservation in general and, and more species becoming extinct? I think I'm both. To work in this field, you have to be an optimist. Otherwise, you'd probably slit your own throat because you can see so many things going wrong. The vultures in India, for example, the chemical companies that have now not been allowed to make diclofenac for veterinary drugs, first of all, took the whole group to court because they were able to make diclofenac for humans. And they made them either in three mil vials or 30 mil vials. Now, 30 mils is way too much for a human being, but it's quite good for a cow. So we, took, we actually got a court um, set to say, and it was, you know, judicial review or whatever else they have in India, to say you can only make three mil vials for human beings. You cannot make 30 mil vials. A chemical companies took us back to court for an appeal. So they didn't give a damn about the vultures because we know that the, the vets out there will not necessarily follow the instructions that says not for animal use. Well, why not? Surely they're vets, they've got into it because, they're, uh, because they like animals, you would imagine. You want to talk to a lot of vets in this country, most of them become vets because their father and their grandfather was, or because it's the most difficult thing to do in university. There's quite a lot of vets who aren't that keen on animals. I know, it's surprising, isn't it? I'm very surprised, yeah. I'm glad to say my vet definitely is. But yeah, I mean, there are a number who only do it because it was a family tradition. And the problem is with the NSAID, which is non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug. Are they still selling these 30 mil vials? No, they're only selling 3 mil vials for human use, which means that if you want to give it to your cow illegally, you've got to buy 10 of them, and so then it becomes less economic than buying meloxicam, which is the only one which is actually safe for vultures at the moment. And that's one of the problems. We have not yet found another drug that is safe. And vets do not like being restricted to only one drug. And the other problem with meloxicam was that when it was first made in India, they got the pH too high, which meant that when you injected it into an animal, it stung like bilio. And so the animal leapt up and down because I don't know if you've ever had a vitamin B injection. I think it's either vitamin B or vitamin A, but boy, does it hurt. No, I've not had that. One of the vitamin injections, you go, whoa, I think I'd rather be unhealthy. (laughs) (laughs) So from that respect, I'm an optimist because you have to believe that you are making a difference. But it's also really easy to be pessimistic about it when you see how much plastic waste there is. 
Mm. I mean, it's crazy. I don't want a cucumber in a plastic sleeve. I don't want to buy a pair of pliers. I have to get another bloody pair of pliers to get the pliers <laughs> out of the plastic that I never wanted in the first place anyway. It's crazy. I don't want my avocados in two little dents that look like bras for them with more plastic over the top. You know what I'd like to do? I'd like everybody for a week to buy all their shopping, unwrap the whole bloody lot, leave all the wrapping in the supermarket and take all your stuff home without any wrapping. I bet you if every single person in this country did that for a week, the supermarkets would say, OK, what are we going to do with all this stuff? We don't want plastic anymore. It's so convenient and cheap for them. They have don't they, have to deal with the issue. Have they really thought about it? Have you ever tried to get one of those things, of pliers out of those plastic? I mean, you need yeah, to... Yeah, I know what you mean. You've got to be Charles Atlas to get the damn thing open. There's far too much sold. I find myself, when I'm in a supermarket sometimes, just standing and looking around and not seeing a single product on the whole 30-metre-long aisle that doesn't have a plastic wrapper on it. It can't go on like that. It's kind of unsustainable, isn't it? It's unsustainable. Um... I'm very happy to have no more plastic in my life, I think. I'm trying to think what I use as plastic. Buckets. Well, I could go back to metal buckets. Well, you don't even realise, do you, how much plastic there is around you until it happens. That'd be tricky, wouldn't it? A toothbrush. Uh, They do bamboo ones. Are they any good? I don't think you can get electric ones, though. Electric toothbrushes and mobile phones. I have both and I never use either of them because I always forget to plug the damn things in. Anyway, I hate mobile phones. Invention of the devil. Yeah, I mean, everyone seems just to be attached to it all the time. It's like an extension of... I think it's more like a disease, personally. (laughs) Yeah, if you said to somebody 30 years ago, what everyone will be doing, we'll be standing in the same room, like in a train station or something, staring at something in the palm of the hand. So I went to a thing that was anti-zoo. Unfortunately, they very cleverly didn't give anyone the chance to actually talk about what was going on. There were two things that made me furious. One was one of the anti-people said, what we all need to have is um, is virtual reality. So you just put these headphones on and you have this thing over your eyes and you can see what re- real wildlife is all about and you don't need to go to a zoo. And the other was a woman who obviously took school kids to zoos and things and she was very rude about it. And she said, it's their responsibility to teach about conservation. And I thought, yep, absolutely, it is our responsibility. But who has the children for longer? You bring your children to me for maybe half a day, if I'm lucky, a whole day. You have them for longer than their parents do through the most formative period of their lives, 7 to 11 and you're telling me it's my responsibility to turn them into conservationists in half a day. Actually, I think it's your responsibility and I'll help. Yeah, with that attitude, you're never going to change, educate a child properly. Mm -mm. That is depressing. I wish people like that weren't in charge of educating children. Do you think we're, in general, moving in the right direction, though? What, humans? No, I think we're devolving, not evolving. (laughs) Really, you don't think that of late there are more people, for example, a lot of people are getting on board with David Attenborough's message. He's, well, especially in England, he's a, he's a national treasure. Everybody, I don't know anyone who disagrees with him on anything. I feel like he is changing people's, not just opinions, but actions as well. Electric cars are coming in. Um, 
Yes, I mean, in this country, I think we are slowly beginning to realise what we are doing. And I think for a lot of people, what they need is to know how to help. And it's no point in saying, Mm. well, you know, you've got to go out and go to India and save the tiger or stand in front of the man who's going to poach an elephant and save the elephant. People need to have things they can hang on to and do which make a difference so they feel like they are making a difference. And I heard on the news the other day that we have to plant a billion and a half trees by 2030. Well, you know, let's plant some trees. Not difficult. Put one in your garden. That'd be great. Have other things live in there. And, you you know, when people say, oh, well, you've got to leave your garden so that it looks like a chaotic mess full of stinging nettles and docks for wildlife. That's not true. You can have a very nice garden, which I do, and it's absolutely full of insects and small birds. And it would be hedgehogs, but the badgers eat them all. What are the problems facing the birds of prey that are in the UK? If you're just talking about birds of prey, birds of prey are at the top of the food chain. So if you look after the insects in your garden, that will then feed the small birds and the mice and voles, that will then feed birds of prey. What you do is you start at the bottom and it works up and filters through to the top. They're very good barometer as to what's happening so little owls are declining dramatically little owls are mainly insectivorous and if we lose the insects in the world it's far more disastrous to this planet than sadly if we lose elephants so you know don't swat every wasp that you see don't spray the um, nests if they're somewhere where they're not going to do you any harm um, try and make sure that you have got plenty of insects around. I have bats here. I have um, lesser horseshoe bats. They like to come in the house and then they hang on the lampshade and they crap all over the carpet. <laughs> but I love them because they come in and they catch all the insects in the house so I don't get bitten by mosquitoes. I wish they caught the maybugs, but they don't. So there is things you can do. You know, have a garden where there are plants, wildlife like, and it doesn't have to be stinging nettles and docks. Look up plants that, that animals and birds like. I have a, a winter honeysuckle here, and it's about the most boring bush in the whole world for most of the year. But in January, when it had its little tiny flowers, it smells heaven, and it was covered in insects absolutely covered in it there was a sunny day and you could hear the humming of bees and all sorts of other insects on this incredibly boring plant which smells great and that helps because then that feeds the small birds that feed the little owls and so on and so forth and then if we take it away from just well just birds then i think we've got to look at the things that are affecting the planet so i think again you're right people are much more aware about plastic A lot of people are saying, I actually don't want this plastic. Is it Waitrose that are now rolling out things where you can take... Yeah, you fill your own container. Yeah. They've just trialled it. I think they they announced that they were going to extend the trial to more stores. So, yeah. Which is good. I think they trialled it in Oxford. Probably need to trial it in somewhere like Manchester or Birmingham and see how people feel about it. But I'm damn sure there's an awful lot of people like me who don't want a plastic cover on their cucumber. Mm-hmm, 100%. There's loads of people all over the country. Yeah. yeah. And I think one of the things that is important is to set an example. And although we are no longer a particularly important country or a big country, um, 
you know, we don't own the world anymore. It's all covered in pink. We do have people who look and countries that look and see what we're doing. So I think the country as a whole have a pride in it, have a pride in your country, which doesn't necessarily mean vote for Brexit, have a pride in your countryside and try and set an example to not just your kids but to your neighbours and to the people down the road and to anybody who is looking to see how you're behaving. Set an example. Don't chuck litter out of your car. If you have you ever looked down the central reservation of a motorway, yeah, don't do it. There's no excuse for litter. No. I heard someone talking a little while ago, actually, about, uh, was it red kites? They were saying that they live around motorways in between London and Birmingham, I think. There's quite a lot of red kites around motorways. And he thinks that one of the reasons is people throw sort of banana peels and apple cores and that sort of thing out of their car windows. And then there's tons and tons of rats and other rodents around, which are perfect food for kites. One of the things that is the biggest danger for kites is they get sort of blindsided by a lorry while they're going for for a vol. Yeah, and the same thing with buzzards. Uh, we have in, because buzzards are doing so well now, the bulk of the injured wild birds that we have in are buzzards and the bulk of the injured buzzards that we have in are road traumas. So they'll see a dead rabbit on the road or they'll see a vole on the road or they'll try and catch something and they go down and they're clumsy flyers. They can't get out of the way quickly. People don't bother to put their foot on the brake and slow down, which is crazy, really. Why would you want to hit something like that anyway? It could damage your car. And I suppose if they dart out in front, I mean, sometimes there's not much you can do. Buzzards don't dart. No. <laughs> there's nothing darting about a buzzard. A sparrowhawk will dart out, but a buzzard is pretty slow lumbering. But it's going to be sitting on a rabbit in the middle and you just have to be a bit aware and slow down. But you have no idea how many people don't bother to slow down. Really? Yeah, I have people bring buzzards in that the car in front ran over uh, and they didn't have to run it over. They could have put their brakes on. No idea why you do that. A lot of the injured birds that you get, are they native yeah, to they're, the UK? They're, well, having said that, I would say, well, yes, of course, they're 100% native, but uh, occasionally we get non-natives in. Occasionally we get Harris hawks in that people have bought and don't realise they live 38 years and take a lot of time and effort and can be noisy and need to be looked after properly and so they boot them out into the wild. In that case, if they're not doing well, they end up here. The the biggest number are buzzards, followed by sparrowhawks and tawny owls, the occasional kestrel, sparrowhawks, usually a female, buzzards are nearly all male, don't ask me why, I have no idea, two goshawks this year and a couple of peregrines as well and you have the facilities to take them as soon whenever they come in yeah there was a kestrel came in this afternoon that very sadly only had half a wing so that had to go straight down to the vet and be euthanized we have a goshawk and two buzzards in right now three buzzards in right now uh, all of which will go back to the wild once they have recovered is that regular does that yeah, happen all the yeah. time a lot of it will be weather dependent if we have a bad winter we nearly always get birds brought in after a weekend or a bank holiday because people are out in the country more. If they're not out in the country, people don't find it and therefore the bird doesn't get any help. But if they're out in the country and they find an injured bird, people will go to huge efforts to 
help it, pick it up, bring it back. And that's really cool. That's a good side of the human race. Yeah, I do think that there's something aesthetically that people like about the type of birds that you have here, the birds of prey. I can imagine that people would be more likely to go out of their way for a a hawk rather than if they saw a, a pigeon or... Trust me, we get pigeons as well. And the occasional seagull, we call them web-footed buzzards. <laughs> We've had pheasants brought in as injured wild birds of prey. Uh, we normally try and find someone else to have a pheasant because a pheasant doesn't have a very good time here <laughs> with all these birds of prey. And I think my favourite is when we get swifts brought in as baby eagles. <laughs> I had a chat phone oh. up. It's amazing. I had a chat phone up and he said... I found this bird of prey and I said, okay, how big is it? And So you have to give them an example. Is it about the size of a starling? Is it the size of a pigeon? Is it the size of a chicken? Oh, probably the size of a pigeon, he said. Okay, fine. So I said, is it brown in colour? Is it a sort of reddish colour? What colour its eyes, yellow or black? He said, oh, it's got black eyes. It's a reddish colour. So I said, well, it sounds to me that size and colour, it's probably a kestrel if you want to bring it in. Do So he arrived from Malmesbury, which is a good hour's drive, with this enormous cardboard box. And I opened the cardboard box, and there cowering in the corner was a black, not red colour, swift. Not the size of a pigeon. They're tiny. And I picked it up, and I said why did you think this is a bird of prey? He said, well, it's got talons. I said, yeah, that's what it hangs onto walls and roofs with. Well, that's what we were talking about before, isn't it? That if people don't get to see these things, Mm. then people have no idea what is actually out there in nature. Well, he was lovely because often with swifts, it just means they've got on the ground and they can't get back up. So we check them over, make sure they've got no broken wings or anything, and then go out onto the front lawn so there's a soft landing and gently hurl them into the air. And it, vanished and I said to him I think it's probably going to be back at Marlborough before you are and he said well that doesn't matter I'm going to call myself International Swift Rescue (laughs) which I thought was quite cool that's a positive story that we're going to end on Um, before we do end though what can people do to learn more to come here to contact you what do you want people to know well we are open seven days a week For the whole of the year, except for December and January, we open on February the 1st. If you want to get really chilly, often it's very quiet in February. You won't be bothered by any large numbers of people, but it can be a bit cold. And literally we're open seven days a week until the end of November. We do owl evenings through November, and then in January we have nobody here. I don't have to be nice to anybody. It's wonderful. (laughs) And that's when we do major cleanups, redos. If we had to one year redo the cafe, my favourite job. The first weekend in January I was mixing concrete. You can look on the website. It's the International Centre for Birds of Prey, and that will tell you where we are. Come from Gloucester to Newant or the M50 to Newant um, and just follow the Brown Tourist sign. Thank you very much for your time. It's been really fun uh, learning about this, and I wish you all the best of luck with all of the environmental causes that you're involved with and obviously with the centre as well. Well, thank you. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening. Despite my consistent unease with the concept of zoos, 
Information and research gathered at ethically minded centres and zoos like this can be vital to the well-being and safety of animals and wildlife around the world. But can I please urge you to be mindful of where you spend your money? There are, as Jemima said, some cowboy zoos and centres that do not follow best practice. So if you can't see the wider benefits that that centre or zoo is providing to conservation and wildlife efforts locally or around the globe, please just stop funding them. Take your hard-earned cash elsewhere and just leave them alone. We need to stop viewing animals as commodities and things that we can just take advantage of for our own pleasure. Jemima, thank you so much for speaking to me. Thank you everyone out there for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, please give me a rating or a review wherever you listen to podcasts. And a final thank you, as always, to Laura James for this beautiful music that you're listening to now. See you next time.